the game itself. It's a unique look at sports that centers in on the mental as well as the physical side of sports and coaching. T.K. Griffith and Scott Matthew Callahan are your hosts, and between them, they bring over 50 years of coaching experience to the table with success in both boys' and girls' athletics. Their expertise comes from the locker room, the classroom, and their living room. Now, the teacher coach with TK and Scott. Thank you very much for listening to the Teacher Coach Podcast. Ladies and gentlemen, Scott and I are having so much fun with this. We appreciate all of your uh, good wishes and uh, emails that are coming in. If you'd like to sponsor the show, please go to the link at the bottom of the Buzzsprout site, which you can access via Twitter or on your podcast app. We're still looking for a title sponsor so that we can pay the bills. If you enjoy this content, please reach out. Thank you so much for listening. Welcome, everybody, to the Teacher Coach here at Brook Point Studios on a pretty mild Ohio May day, folks. The sun is not out. Coronavirus is still running rampant around here. We're e-learning, and we're also podcasting today, folks, from Cuyahoga Falls, Ohio. We're blessed and lucky today to have with us Jason Knapp, an elite teacher at Wadsworth High School who works in the history classroom, but a young man who also has had an incredible journey in teaching and coaching with stops along the way at Mount Union, Massillon, Kenmore, and currently as a defensive coordinator at Wadsworth on the football side. Ladies and gentlemen, he's a teacher, he's a learner, he's a traveler, he's a husband, he's a father. Jason Knapp is with us today. So, Jason, I just want to get started in case you haven't had a chance to listen to the podcast. Uh, Scott and I decided to take advantage of some of the the time we had here with coronavirus to start a podcast that explores the philosophy of teaching and coaching that we find um, the highest model, which is the teacher-coach. Somebody who uh, not only works with students but, but may also work with athletes in some capacity or perhaps it might just be a philosophy and a package of behaviors um, that allows anybody to be a teacher coach. could be a mom, a business person, a, a dad, a, a dentist. Um, it could be just the guy down the street who you run into when you're walking your dog. But the teacher coach is kind of a philosophy that we've always felt we really admired and we wanted to kind of dig into it. So I just want to, before we get started, obviously you're a teacher and a coach, so you fit there literally. But where do you um, see this model of the teacher coach in your own journey in education? Well, I, I think it starts first with, you know, your inspirations, okay? Um, you know, I went to Wadsworth High School. Uh, I was really, really lucky to have a lot of tremendous teachers. And, and that, that goes all the way back from, you know, elementary to middle school to high school. You know, um, it, it's just a great honor to be on here today with Coach Callahan because he, and I know that you had uh, Coach Gramugli on as well recently, uh, two very, very important people in my life. Um, and I just have always really enjoyed watching people do what they love to do. Mm-hmm. You know, and I think at the end of the day, that's what we got to let our kids see. Yeah. Is um, as long as they're watching us um, passionate about what we do, you know, that that inspiration alone might be enough to inspire them to to go do something they love to do. Absolutely. When, when did you fall in love with, with teaching history? Was that something that you kind of fell into? In, in, my, own, in my own life, um, to be very honest, I was more of a basketball coach first. And mm-hmm. then after about year two or three, and I just taught English because I, w- I was a decent writer and I, I kind of liked mm-hmm. writing more than reading. So I, I just chose English. And honestly, uh, to be frank, I, was, I wanted to be a coach. And then about mm-hmm. two or three years into teaching English, I, I thought to myself, man, I love this stuff. 
Like I'm digging into so much uh, material here that I, I guess I never really appreciated, and I want the kids to appreciate it. So I'm just curious. I had to grow into it personally, but how did you kind of find your love of history, or was that always there as a youngster? Well, I think I think you're you're kind of similar to me. I, I think I was an athlete first in high school, mm-hmm. and um, not that I didn't get good grades and, and take it uh, seriously, but yeah. um, you know, even into college, um, I still love sports. But certain history courses that I took in high school with certain teachers, and then I'll never forget, this is interesting, I didn't go to Mount Union first, uh, believe it or not. I, I went to Ohio University first Oh, okay. Uh, in Athens, Ohio, which is a beautiful campus. I had a tremendous freshman year. I made great friends. My grades were good. Um, but it, it's weird. I don't know if it was an epiphany or, or what, but... I was walking uh, to class one day. It was spring semester of my freshman year at Ohio U, and it just hit me. Um, you know, there, there's got to be more to it than just than just this. Yeah. So, what I decided was, you know what, I'm gonna I'm gonna go back to uh, playing football, and I, I I called, believe it or not, the coaches who recruited me out of high school from Mount Union and Baldwin Wallace. Mm-hmm. And uh, a good friend of mine whose son went to Mount Union took me back to Mount Union after that first year at Ohio U, and I transferred to Mount Union. But I I, I use that segue here only to tell you, I think what happened is I decided that I love history. I want to be a history teacher. Right. I also want to be a coach. Yeah. Okay. And then this is why I like this podcast, because the topic of it, teacher, coach, is that, you know, I, I... got hit with right away, oh, you you want to be a history teacher right. because you want to coach football. <laughs> and, um, you know, I don't know if that's ever been the case for, for people, right. but I think you've heard that. Yeah. And in some ways, I, I took offense to that because I, I just love, I love history. Right. And um, yeah. believe it or not, I, I think I would set aside coaching. Yeah, definitely first before I would set aside uh, teaching. Absolutely. And Scott, before you ask that question, um, I've got to tell you, Jason, I totally relate. I mean, one of the reasons, you know, maybe after year two or three that I really wanted to be a great English teacher or try to be a great English teacher was because I never wanted people to think that I was there just to coach. Yeah. Um, I really took offense to anybody who thought, and, and maybe maybe I took offense to myself thinking that initially, that I just wanted to be a coach, but I never, ever wanted a kid to leave my classroom and said, oh, he only cares about basketball. Mm-hmm. I, I, I want a kid to leave my classroom and say, wow, man, I can't believe how much he puts into this English classroom when I know how much time he has to extend outside of it. So mm-hmm. that, that that's what kind of drove me a, a little bit to want to be really good in the classroom. That's funny that yeah. you mentioned that. Yeah, it, it, it wasn't so much of an anger, you know, it was actually kind of hurt, you know, yeah. that somebody would think that, that yeah. uh, we only went into the profession to, to coach, and uh, that's definitely not the case. Yeah, Jason, I remember you. When I was a beginning teacher, you were going through high school, and one of your identities was you were the best athlete in the school. Mm-hmm. Uh, you were fast, and you were strong, and you played multiple sports. How did you identify with yourself when you were in high school um, so that you weren't stereotyped in a particular mm-hmm. manner? Well, I, I want to make sure that I got involved in a lot of things. All right. Yeah, I was in, in, in athletics, 
but I, I was also very active in the, the speech uh, program uh, on TV in front of the camera. Matter of fact, uh, that's kind of what I wanted to do at first, actually, was be a broadcaster, huh. um, believe it or not. But um, I fell in love with history. I think I kind of grew up. You know, watching the news with my parents. I mean, I just never forget that. You know, Peter right. Jennings at night, yeah. and talking to my parents about uh, those kinds of topics. And um, but that was that was important. I think you know, I didn't want to be the jock. You know, when I teach Teddy Roosevelt, you know, he's a perfect example. You know, he's the epitome of of should I say the Renaissance man, or you know, he's. He's all of it. He's the total package. So when I introduce Teddy Roosevelt in class, I I open up the lesson with push-ups. <laughs> I push-up, yeah, I have a push-up contest with the kids, and you know that that's the idea of Teddy Roosevelt's strenuous life. You know, not only was he the president, but he had oh my gosh, multiple other jobs. He had quite a resume. He wrote. Uh, well over 40 books and you know he just wasn't that jock he was he was all of it in one Jason when you mentioned Teddy Roosevelt um, is he the guy who penned the competitors creed sure absolutely yeah, yeah. And, and it's it's so true you know that and you know this as a coach and a teacher you know we put ourselves out there we're up on stage you know in front of the classroom you know, it's amazing if you actually ever add that up. Mm-hmm. 20 years yeah. of five or six classes a day, <laughs> 179 times, right? Right, right. Uh, a year, and just how many times you're up on stage. And then, of course, on the, the floor in front of everybody coaching basketball. I mean, you understand right. this. Yeah. It, it's very easy to, to criticize what yeah. we do. Mm-hmm. Um, but I take great pride in how hard it is. Yeah. I think, believe it or not, that um, during this pandemic um a lot of people have mentioned um you know the the importance of of teaching and coaching no yeah, question absolutely so jason i want to go back to ou did, did you feel were you there for athletic reasons did you get a scholarship i did not i did not okay. i was only recruited by division three schools okay. um, i did go visit mount union okay. and Bolden wallace and allegheny but i had some i had some knee surgeries yeah like two my senior year and okay I just thought I was done, but yeah. like I said, ultimately I, I wasn't done. Right. When you had when you had that epiphany, um, when you had that epiphany at OU, what what was it to get back into athletics and go to a smaller school where you could play, or was it was there something superficial about OU that you just weren't digging? No, I, I, that's kind of the interesting part of this is I, I loved Ohio U, and mm-hmm. I just said to myself though I didn't want to graduate four years and just say yeah. this is all that I did. Right. Believe it or not, yeah. um, I wanted to say that I, I, I played college athletics. I could put it on yeah. my resume. Yeah. I felt that it would benefit me too um, right. Right. to become a coach to yeah. have that experience. Okay. So you you wanted uh, so you went to Mount Union, and I'm curious what 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 did you gather from that experience from the teachers and coaches that you encountered that kind of resonates today? And I know you're going to miss some people because obviously when we go to college, there are so many people who influence us. But I'm just curious what 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 you kind of got out of that small college experience from the teachers and coaches who coaches who were a part of your life. I was directly recruited by Don Montgomery. Okay, now Don Montgomery was a defensive coordinator at Mount Union. Mount Union. He was also the wrestling coach. Wow. Also taught classes. Although a lot of Division yeah. three coaches they they teach as well. Right. Um, and I'll just never forget 
uh, sitting in his office when he was recruiting me mm-hmm. and the intensity in his face and his eyes. Yeah. And we just connected. Yeah. I don't mean that in a funny way. I, I, I think it's really important that guys find other guys that they just can have some fellowship with right away, immediately. Yeah. yeah. Well, here's the great, the great thing about Don Montgomery is just last week he called me. <laughs> and, you know, I think about him a lot, yeah. right? And he just wanted to make sure that I was okay and my family was fine. Wow. And, um, you know, he hadn't changed a bit. I hadn't, I hadn't talked to him in maybe 10 years or so. Oh, my gosh. Um, wow. Now, Coach Karras, now that's a completely different story. I mean, <laughs> when you walk into his office, which I did, um, you're immediately intimidated. Yeah. And I know that he doesn't probably want you to be intimidated, but <laughs> right. I mean, even to this day, I, I think I still get the willies when I'm around him. But, you know, yeah. it, it's like walking to the president of the United States. Right. And, right. Um, you know, th- th- those two as a team were, were so uh, important to the beginnings of that dynasty. Right. I'm curious about Don Montgomery because that's not a name that I, being a, a distance away from Mount Union and not being mm-hmm. in, the, in the area during that time, I'm curious what his style was as a coach, you know, on on the field. Well, yeah, Don Don was the you know I, I think the, the players' coach, the the emotional coach, which I think everybody loved about him. Yeah, um, you're not a, not afraid to show his uh, his emotion. Yeah, um, but Coach Karras, on the other hand, was um, should I say more of the um, like I said earlier, kind of the president of the yeah. whole operation, right? And uh, they just, I think, wore those two hats perfectly. Yeah. Jason, uh, arguably, Larry Karras is the most successful college football coach of all time. And he has more disciples in college football and in professional football than anybody right now. From Matt Campbell at Iowa State to Jason Candle at Toledo. Mm -hmm. Um, What are two or three things that you learn from Coach Karras that you still use today as both a teacher and a coach? You know, I shared this story with, with somebody the other day. Um, I can remember my first year at Mount Union. Um, you know, my grades were, you know, it was tough adjusting to, to college sports and athletics. You know, it's, it's just a lot. And, you know, they weren't terrible. Um but he, he, uh, he had saw my parents at a game, and he had mentioned to them that, you know, he, he wanted my grades to be improved. And it was like the first thing he said to him. <laughs> first of all, how did he know my grades? I mean, we had like a hundred kids on the team. And then I, I got them up then the second semester, and that summer he wrote me a handwritten uh, letter about how proud he was of me and getting my grades up. Wow. And uh, he did it again. But this time it was from the athletic side of things, football side of things, uh, going into my junior year, which I, I felt I had a chance to start. I wasn't sure. Yeah. You kind of wait your turn at Mount Union. But he had wrote, uh, written another handwritten letter to me about my numbers in the weight room and how he's noticed how they've improved, you know, signed Larry Karras. <laughs> so, you know, th- those are the kinds of coaches that are at Mount Union. Um, that uh, there's a reason why they've won as many championships as they have. 
Jason, one of my favorite stories um, about you as it relates to Coach Karras is the first time you got to step on the field and return a kickoff. Can, yeah. can you kind of relay that story to us? Well, yeah, I mean, I was excited. I mean, come on. I mean, I was a freshman. Um, you know, I did have those you know, maybe punt return or kick returner skills. I was a defensive back, but that was my first chance on the field with special teams. And uh, it was game one and you know, here comes the opening kickoff, and it was deep. So I'm like, well, you know, I'm, I have to knee this one in the end zone. But unfortunately, I was on the one-yard line. So, <laughs> <laughs> you know, and I'll just never forget coming over to the sideline. You didn't yell and scream, and he just told me, he's like, you know, it's it's really not uh, <laughs> not good to, be, you know, to start our opening drive on the, the one-yard line. But um, I'll say this. I, I didn't return any kicks, though, ever again. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that was it. Yeah. So, Jason, um, before we get into your journey a little bit, which we've already started, but I want to take a break from your journey. I'm just curious if I walked into your, and I, if I was a freshman or a sophomore in your classroom, what's your classroom experience like on a daily basis? What, what's your uh, style with the kids, and uh, how how are you a teacher coach in the classroom? Well, you know, I think I'm still uh, pretty much a direct style of teaching. Mm-hmm. Um, although I try hard to to do more. Uh, you know, um, interactive type things. Um, but I still feel my comfort level and when I'm at my best is up there just explaining things and telling stories and all of those things, which I think history still demands when the question, but I I think a lot of consistency, I I think the kids know that we're going to go from bell to bell uh, without a doubt. Yeah. And I I think they're going to know too that, um, I care and, you know, the idea that um, what we're doing in history class really is important. Right. Um, and what I mean by that is, you know, I, I really feel that we're, we're solving problems for the future. Yeah. I, I think that, you know, if we think that they're all going to go into history one day and become history teachers, that's ridiculous. <laughs> but they're, what they're going to do is they're going to become leaders. Right. And in critical situations like right now. Yeah. And they're going to use the lessons right. that we've learned. And and I don't go with the cliche that history repeats itself. Mm-hmm. I don't think it does. I think people do, though. Right. And I think behaviors do. Right. And, um, you know, it's really interesting. I, I'm getting ready to teach AP European history next year. And so I, I opened up my new textbook, and there it was, 14th century, Black Death, the plague, <laughs> a pandemic. Yeah. Right. <laughs> The, the connections are there right. and you know while i've been off i've, I've you know we've all been doing a lot of reading so you know the books i picked up is i picked up um no ordinary time which is from 1940 to 45 it's a story of franklin roosevelt and eleanor roosevelt right and what they went through in those five years in world war ii together it's right. absolutely incredible um and I also picked up a book, too, to read about the Battle of the Bulge because my yeah. grandfather landed on the beaches of Normandy, fought his way through France, and ended up in the Battle of the Bulge and made it home. Wow. Wow. And, you know, what I've learned, and I think we all can learn from this moment that we're in, is not to downplay it. It, yeah. it is very serious. Yeah. But just to understand that we're going to get through it because there's a lot of experiences where the human spirit has proven over and over that we will. Absolutely. Um, when when you talk about the human spirit, um, what do you do with a kid who doesn't bring 
who doesn't bring in his best human spirit on a given day, and maybe he's a reluctant learner, and for some reason history is not clicking with him. What's your methodology to connect with a reluctant learner or somebody who just really doesn't care about history? Yeah, that's going to happen for sure, no matter you know what you do. Um, however, you know, as I think we have all learned here, uh, being 20 years or so into teaching, is that mm-hmm. a lot of kids are dealing with a lot of things that we don't know yeah. about. Yeah, and there, there very well could be a reason why they're not doing their work, Absolutely. or even why they're tired. Yeah, that used to take offense maybe to that. I think, wow, am I that boring? <laughs> Um, but yeah. you know, when a student maybe dozes off, I, I don't blame it on the student. I blame it on me. Yeah. You know, I got to become more engaging and I also need maybe to find out why right. uh, he's, he or she is so tired and right. not into it. So, yeah. you know, that, that kind of, uh, process I think needs to happen. Right. Jason, you said two things about your teaching, bell to bell and consistency. And, and I, those are so important because I think, kids, especially at the high school level, but at every level, but we're, we're uh, high school teachers, the three of us, they want two things. They, they want to know what to expect. They don't like to be surprised in a negative or threatening mm-hmm. way. And um, so they want that consistency. Um, but they also want discipline mm-hmm. because um, they, they don't maybe know how to articulate that, but that's the best environment that provides safety and then encouragement and success. What are, so I lead up with all that, Jason, what are Mm -hmm. two or three things you like to do to either start a class period or end a class period so that your kids know what to expect? Well, I always start with what I call the big question. Okay. And you know, the idea is, first of all, I think the question has to be engaging. And even sometimes a bit weird and a bit strange. Uh, but by the end of the period, if they can walk out of that class and down the hallway and somebody, hey, what did you learn in, in Mr. Knapp's class today? Well, you know, we, learned, we learned this, right? I mean, it was the answer to the big question. Right. Or maybe their answer. Yeah. That's the other point here, Coach, is that in history, it's really not always about the answers. Mm-hmm. It's simply about the questions. Yeah. Okay, and, um, you know, I've I, I told my kids, if you walk out of history class sometimes confused, right. then maybe I've done my job. Yeah. I mean, there's a lot of topics in history that we don't know the answers to. Yeah. Um, but I guess what I would end with, too, with this, coaches, is that for some of these kids, this will be the only history class they ever take in their entire life. Wow. And I've got to approach it that way. I got one shot. Yep. Right? To kind of quote Eminem, right? I got <laughs> one shot, you know, to, to make it count. Yeah. Okay? Coach, we've gone from Teddy Roosevelt to Eminem. I, I don't know. <laughs> this might have just become the best podcast in the nation. Scott. Yeah, I, I got to follow that up, Jason. I yeah. know you love music. Yes. And, and I know music is part of how you teach. And I mm-hmm. think there are so many parallels um, between music and history. It's something that um, I'm not the aficionado, especially on the heavy metal side that you are, <laughs> but I am really trying to use music more and more as a teacher to connect with my kids emotionally mm-hmm. and intellectually. Um, how do you do that? Well, there's so many ways. I, I mean, I just love it. Um, 
you know, I'll give you a, just a, a band, for example. And I know I've talked to you about this before, Coach, but Iron Maiden is a, is a very, very, <laughs> this might sound crazy, but you have to see <laughs> the lyrics. I mean, they're a very intellectual, thinking mm-hmm. man, heavy metal right. group. And a lot of their songs are based on historical events. Yeah. And that's just a, a one way to, you know, pull a kid in. I was so pumped. Well, before we went on the quarantine, I had a student. He's in a band, which I love. And he said, you know what, Mr. Knapp, what we're going to do is we're going to spend a lot of time in the garage <laughs> over, over quarantine. <laughs> and he, he had lyrics all written out, and they were wow. historically based. And yeah. I'm like, oh, my gosh, this this is awesome. Yeah, but to be able to connect on that level, I mean, I'm 45 now, and but I, you know, I, I read their T-shirts and I research the music and yeah. make sure I can talk pop culture. Right, right. I'm glad you brought that up, uh, Jason. I, I also integrate music into my classroom a lot. In fact, I bring a, a guitar in and I, I sing a couple of songs very poorly because I'm not much of a oh, wow. vocalist. But yeah. the Circle Game by Joni Mitchell. I think really connects with Catcher in the Rye at the end when the uh, narrator is on the carousel. And then I have a, I have an original called Lots of Changes Now, Lots mm-hmm. of Changes Now, Holy Cow, 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 Wow, Wow, yeah. Wow, Wow, Wow. wow. Uh, <laughs> I, I would play it for you guys, but I don't want to go there. However, it's fun to bring the guitar in. And Rob Yanko, a history teacher at Hoban, kind of showed me the courage to do that now he's much more gifted musically than i am but rob has a whole repertoire of things that he does with his guitar rob is 74 years old he's my dad's age my dad has passed away and he's still going strong in the history classroom at hoban but before i leave music um and maybe this is a good time to bring this up when coach cal steps away here um when i teach the scarlet letter jason i want to share this with you um, yeah. There's not a name. When somebody is a woman who is um, uh, in a relationship with a man and, and they're not and she's not married to that man, we, we call that a mistress. But we don't have a great name in society for the for the for the male figure who yeah. is um, perpetrating this. So in the Scarlet Letter, I, I refer to Dimsdale as the Mr. Mister. OK, and when I refer to Dimsdale as the Mr. Mister, I show a Mr. Mister video or two. Carrie Leso is one of them. And the yeah. lead singer of Mr. Mister is Scott Callahan's twin. And so when Scott was our <laughs> girls basketball coach and I had his when I had Scott's players in my room and I showed them this Mr. Mister video and I equated that with Scarlet Letterman, they just loved it. Because if you've ever watched that, I guarantee Broken Wings and uh, Carrie Leso, it's Scott Love Callahan. It. Um, Love talk, the 1980s. Yeah. Love it. Talking Heads and Rush also are very deep to dig into. But let's get back to your journey yeah. here. Sure. Um, so from Mount Union, you want to become a teacher and a coach, and you learn so much from uh, Don Montgomery and, and Larry Karras. And then and then what's your first step after uh, Mount Union? Well, again, this is another connection back to coach, or te- uh, coach teach, teacher, I should say. Um, my One of my head coaches in, in – high school with Ron Jones. Well, he was the principal when I came out of Mount Union. And I had applied to a lot of schools around the area. I was really interested in going to Jackson, had some interviews lined up. And well, Coach Jones called me and said, you know, you need, you need to put your resume in here and we need to talk. And before you know it, you know, I, I got the job at Wadsworth. So wow. not, I don't know, but it's just because he was my football coach. I had him as a math teacher. Okay. Uh, Again, he might have looked at you know the Mount Union 
uh, connection. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I think he knew me, and I think Wadsworth's been known for that to, to hire back people that they know and trust and, and those kinds of things. So when I got there, I, I started to work for Greg Dennison, which okay. was an absolute great coach to start my career with. Okay. You know, Coach Dennison has had great success, and um, I just learned so much from him. And so I spent, you know, probably a good seven, eight years with, with Coach Dennison. Okay. Yeah. And then after uh, being with Coach Dennison, well, first of all, um, when you first came back to Wadsworth to teach, yeah. was that a little bit of a surreal experience? I know I also came back to my own high school at Hoban, and those yeah. first few years were so um, fun in a way and, and scary in a way, but also um, kind of like coming back home, but from a different vantage yeah. point. How was it for you coming back home? It was actually, you know, it's it's strange at first because your teachers now are your colleagues, <laughs> right? So, you know, do I call him Scott or do I call him Mr. Callahan or right. Coach? You know, right. I think I just stuck with Coach. Yeah. Right. But, um, you know, just to uh, I think then make friendships with with the the people that inspired you. Right. Um, so it's it's just so neat that way. So that no, was a great transition. Yeah. So with Coach Dennison, what role did you have on the, on the field, um, and, and how was Coach Dennison a teacher coach? Well, Coach Dennison's a, just a fantastic teacher. You know, the one thing I learned about Coach Dennison is how to simplify things, and mm-hmm. yeah, I think we all know that's the absolute philosophy of coaching and teaching is how of simplification. And yeah. uh, he was just so clear in the way he taught things, and yeah. um, you know. Of course, on the football field, uh, discipline was his number one. Yeah. Our staff was very disciplined. Yeah. Um, I, I'd coached uh, both sides. You know, we didn't two platoon it, so that was okay. another helpful thing. I had to learn both offense and defense. Yeah. He also gave me the uh, coordinating of the special teams. Okay. We got some responsibility there. Awesome. So then yep. what, what was your next stop after uh, co- coaching at Wadsworth for seven or eight years? But I, I'm assuming you remained teaching at Wadsworth this whole time. I have. Okay. I, I did. And, and then your, um, your next venture in coaching was? Well, my good friend who I played uh, football with at Mount Union, Jason Hall, okay. um, became the head coach at Maslin. Wow. And he you know, talked me into coming down there. He didn't really have to talk me into it too much. <laughs> you know, I just always wanted to experience right. Maslin. And it was just a great, great experience. One of the best decisions I ever made because yeah. – I also then met another staff full of really good coaches. Right. When you learn more philosophies, more schemes. Right. For a great defensive coordinator, Steve Kovacs, uh-huh. and um, just had a just had a ball down there. Jason, what what is one or two things you learned from Coach Hall? I, I know Jason, and mm-hmm. his intensity and his competitive spirit are just unreal. And then how would you describe the Maslin mystique? Well, first of all, I think to be the head coach at Maslin, it takes a very special person. And um, the, the, the amount of work and hours that need to be put in and what's expected. And I think Jason just handled that so well. He's just so tough. Mm-hmm. Like you can't be a coach there if you're not tough. Yeah. And um, you'll be able to handle the criticism, but also be able to handle all the hype yeah. and all the, the, the fun that's around it. And, I just can't explain what they've got there. You know, the Mass and McKinley week and just how much that town loves football. But, um, you know me, I, I love football and I love being around that kind of hype. It's just yeah. so neat. Right. And, so and you guys neat. made a run one year when you were there, didn't you? Yeah, I mean, we got to the Final Four. We got beat by Glenville. Mm-hmm. 
Okay, and of course, that was a time when they just had tremendous players. Yeah. Tremendous players. Um, but I, I just always respect the Maslin players, too. They just play so hard, and yeah. they all understand the importance of it. I mean, they just been waiting on that dream to play there. Right. Which is very cool. Which then you can kind of hopefully take this culture back. Yeah. Right? And, um, you know, share it with other people. I'm curious because um, I love learning new things in coaching and I'm always trying to grow. What what, what new schemes or, I guess, ways of coaching did, did you pick up at Maslin from some of their assistants that perhaps, you know, you, you didn't get at Mountain Union or was different than Coach Dennison's style? Because everybody's different. Yeah. I'm not saying it's better, but it sure. was different. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, for our football coaches out there, I mean, I, I we ran a 50 defense for yeah. Coach Dennison, right? So, you know, when I got down to – to um, Maslin, we were more of a 3-4 yeah. hybrid. And, uh, you know, I learned a lot more coverage schemes. Uh, I, I worked with a great secondary coach here, Dan Hackenbrack. He's still there. Played yeah. for Nick Saban at Michigan State. Wow. And, and just learned the, the Nick Saban family of coverages. I mean, if you know okay. anything about Nick Saban, he is the absolute guru of secondary play. Okay. Well, there I got to talk to actually who played for him. Wow. And um, so that was just invaluable. Yeah. Was that was that tough commuting from a uh, teaching job at Wadsworth to Maslin? Yeah, it was. And let, let's remember, I had three kids under the age of three and a half at the time. <laughs> oh boy! And wow. you know, and that kind of is a segue to the next position. It's, yeah. it's strange how things happen. You know, right. I wasn't sure I was going to go back because I, I just didn't know if I could put the time in right. with the drive and so forth. And then out of the blue, a guy by the name of Ed Peltz calls mm-hmm. me. Okay. And he is a was a teacher at Kenmore. He was a former head football coach at Kenmore okay. in the eighties. Yeah. Well, he was going to take the job back over. Okay. So he called some people that he knew. Um, guy I coached with named Lance Kearns gave him my name and said, "Hey, this guy wants to be a coordinator." Yeah. Give him a call. Well, the salesman that Ed is he <laughs> talked me into. Yeah. Uh, coming to Kenmore. Wow. And people are like, "What? You're going from Maslin to Kenmore?" And <laughs> like yeah and he's like i need a guy who's gonna roll his sleeves up yeah and coach he said we only have 13 kids on our team oh my gosh now we ended up with i'd say in the 20s that first yeah. year yeah. and um it, you know it was tough we went two and eight our first year i'll never forget this we got beat by firestone 72 to nothing oh my god the defensive coordinator wow and as we were getting on the bus they were calling us the scout team but, you know, I think from those experiences, you know, we, we battled back. I think our third year, we were 6-4 and four and almost made the playoffs and beat wow. Bookdoor and yeah. teams that Kenmore hadn't beaten in 20 years. So yeah. it was a great experience. Jason, you said something uh, um, that made me think about a word you used a little bit earlier, and that's courage. Mm-hmm. It must have taken it, the, the courage it takes to teach and to stand up and be on stage and and take the criticism, win or fail. It must have taken tremendous courage to leave Maslin and to go to Kenmore. Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, because everybody's telling you, you know, that that's professionally that doesn't seem like the next step. Yeah. So why did you do it? Because I I really believed it was the next step, and. Um... You know, I wanted to be a coordinator of a defense and, and learn, um, you know, more responsibility in that regard, how to call a game, I guess, so yeah. to speak. Yeah. But, you know, I, I also looked into Ed's eyes. 
You know, what you know, Ed Peltz told me was that, you know, you look through somebody's eyes and it goes straight to their soul. Yeah. Right? And he's a guy I wanted to work with. He's a guy I wanted to uh, go to Kenmore and make changes. And that was as rewarding as Maslin or any job I've ever had is yeah. what we did at Kenmore. And, you know, I miss the kids. Yeah. You know, to kind of explain my, my situation at Kenmore, I was a defense coordinator for three years and I became the head coach my fourth year. Okay. And I was, was only the head coach for one year. Okay. And to be very honest with you, I mean, I haven't told a lot of people this, but you know, I kind of fired myself. Yeah. And, and what I mean by that is I, I just didn't think I could do the job not coaching, I'm sorry, teaching in the building. Yeah. And that was a job. They needed a football coach that could be in the building with them all day long. Right. And I had decided to um, come back to Wadsworth, but yeah, um, I do miss I do miss the kids there, and yeah, well, I still see them. Matter of fact, when I go shopping, <laughs> Farrell on, and I'll see them, yeah. and yeah, you know, um, you know, the, when kids hug you and yeah, and and and, and um, tell you how much they love you. I mean, that that's just that's yeah. what we do. Yeah. Jason, what are some victories that you experienced as a head coach at Kenmore? And I'm not talking about on the scoreboard, because I know you won games and mm-hmm. you upset some people that year, and there were a lot of on-field successes. But what about off the field? Well, it, it, you know, I'm, I'm from Wadsworth, right? <laughs> you know, I, I'm from a suburb, and, um, you know, to understand how other uh, maybe urban schools and the problems that they have and have to overcome, it just gave me great perspective. Yeah. You know, that, that was a victory in itself. Um, and helping some of these kids, you know, I, I had to, you know, drive a lot of kids home at night and, you know, just talking to them in the car and, um, you know, talking about, you know, their future. Yeah. And, um, you know, we, we had some kids that went on to play college football. Right. Um, we had one go to Akron U and have a nice career, and yeah, those are those are the victories. Right, Jason. How did you have to change, um, or did you not change in the way that you interacted with a Wadsworth athlete who's from the suburbs? I'm also mm-hmm. from the suburbs. I grew up in Stowe, although I went to Hoban. Um, mm-hmm. And then Maslin, which I think is a mixture. It's it's on the edge of being a suburb. It's 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 yeah. somewhat of a city, but it's not quite mm-hmm. a city like Akron is. And and then you come into the urban environment um were, were you a tough love guy did you have to change and adapt how, how did you uh as a coach you know uh, interact change or evolve in that well coach that, that's a really good question and you know i think what happened was that you know my heart was really big mm-hmm. and what i mean is i i um i think there were situations sometimes when you you had to decide, you know what, maybe this kid needs to be pinched. Yeah. Or unfortunately, maybe even kicked off the team. Right. And, and maybe sometimes I couldn't bring myself to do that. Yeah. That was a real big hurdle to try to understand how to walk that line. I think you might know what I mean in that yeah. situation. <laughs> I do. And, um, <laughs> you know, because you just want to give them a second and third chance. Right. But that's just not in Kenmore. I mean, that's, yeah. in, a, that's in every school district, yeah. no matter where they live. Right. Um, but yeah. um, I learned a lot about a lot about culture, which I was yeah. better for. Yeah. Jason, I couldn't agree with you more. I, I think when we talk about critics from the outside, whether we're talking about high school sports, college sports, or professional sports, it's so easy for people outside of a team 
to be hypercritical of players in coaching that guy doesn't deserve a second chance or you can't trust him mm-hmm. or the coach lacks discipline or whatever. But I think all three of us and almost every teacher coach listening to this podcast can relate to the idea that sometimes you have to ask yourself, well, you know, th- th- how much does this kid need this class or how much mm-hmm. does this kid need this team? Because it might be the only positive light in his or her life. Mm-hmm. And I'm sure you experienced that at Wadsworth. I'm sure you yeah. experienced that at Maslin. And I'm sure you experienced that at Kenmore. And you talk about having a big heart. Maybe that's what we're called to do as teachers yeah. is um, maybe change after the second or third chance how we're interacting with that student or that athlete, but still be willing to be open to the fact that maybe that kid needs us and the setting that we're providing more than we could ever realize. No doubt, no doubt. And I, I remember that at Kenmore to our last game, our kids, we, we, we had to kick them out of the locker room. They, they wanted to stay and talk, mm-hmm. and they, they probably would have slept there yeah. that night. And, and I still remember that to this yeah. day. Coach, you know, that, that makes me, that gives me pause because, you know, as I reflect on my coaching career at Hoban, um, I think there are different levels of appreciation and connections that we make with kids. Um, and I've said this before on another podcast, but I want to pick your brain on it. Is, is there different levels of appreciation for athletes, especially from perhaps where they come from socioeconomically or perhaps with their home? Um in my personal life, so I'll set this up from my vantage point, um, <laughs> the guys that I see and, and give me an automatic hug or just feel really connected to me are sometimes the ones who's, um, I don't want to say always socioeconomically, but perhaps there was a little bit of that there, uh, mm-hmm. were, were, were perhaps um, not overly blessed with affluence. But in addition to that, they may not have had a father in their home. And because of that, they really grew attached to me as a coach. And I always thought that that was just really rewarding. Um, in, in fact, it, it almost makes me want to at some point later in my career, although Hoban has a lot of diversity in many different shapes and, and ways, perhaps go to a Kenmore because there is something about that that just seems rewarding that, that you may or may not have that opportunity to do if you're out in, um, let's say, a Cleveland suburb so that we can stay away from the Akron area. Let's say if we're in Gates Mills. You might yeah. not, you know, you might not connect as well. I'm just curious. What was your experience as far as the appreciation from different levels of of uh, athletes that you interact with? Well, you know, I, I've had a great experience. I've been to Wadsworth. I've been to uh, Maslin. I've been to Kenmore, and back to Wadsworth. So I've had a lot to compare and contrast to. But yeah. to kind of answer your question, I, I, I think you know, problems just aren't located in one spot. You know, yeah. I think I've seen. Th- similar problems in each case yes okay um and you know even let's take a wealthier family yes. you just don't always know what they're missing yeah possibly right, right? And, right. You know, that's why i just pray that you know we have we have our our season this year because yeah. it's so much more than just okay the money that the athletic department brings in correct like, all we talk about is <laughs> oh my gosh right Right. That the athletic department's going to be bankrupt. Well, yeah. we're also going to be bankrupt of uh, a perfect chance to teach uh, ethics and morals and 
conduct and virtues right. and all of these right. things that right. we do. Yeah, you're right. And I, I've also, um, I've often talked about a different type of poverty that people have that, that has nothing to do with money. Uh, yeah. It could be a work ethic poverty. It could mm -hmm. be um, a connection with your family poverty. Um, it, it could be actual poverty. It could be spiritual poverty. There's, there's so many different types of poverty that a family can have that are not connected necessarily to socioeconomics. So when I staged that question, I think I, I missed something there. However, um, I was curious in that way. Uh, so I'm going to go back to the, to the image of your team not wanting to leave the locker room. That, yeah. that to me is an image or a symbol, if, that, if this was a novel, that is an image of the beauty of team sports. I mean, talk about that a little bit. People don't understand that when you're a part of a larger community that a team becomes, mm -hmm. and that team kind of becomes a family of people that you're not related to. You know, that, that's the essence of team sports that maybe if you're not in the locker room, you just don't understand. Yeah. Yeah, the locker room is a special place, without question, and... You know, um, talking to some of their parents afterwards, mm -hmm. and um, they were they were just so um, proud that their their son had completed a football season and willing to invite you over for dinner and, and all of these things. Um, it was just a tremendous experience. You know, I got two other stories about Kenmore that you made me think of. Is we call Jim Tressel mm -hmm. if he would come speak at our first ever team dinner wow. you know we didn't you know we don't have a lot of team dinners but you know he came and spoke and and spent a lot of time with us and so did the mayor don pusqualic who played at kenmore right so i got to meet him and jim trestle so kenmore also you know enabled me to meet people i never would have met absolutely yeah Jason, you just said that the locker room is a special place. Well, mm -hmm. I've been in your classroom, and I wouldn't describe it so much as a classroom, but more of a museum. I mean, mm -hmm. it's a special place, yeah. too. Every inch of your classroom is decorated, mm -hmm. and it's like you're walking through different periods of history. <laughs> How do you, in your classroom, make that uh, a place where kids feel um, comfortable to communicate, to participate, to have a voice. I think what's really important, and I, I don't mean to go philosophical here. By the way, I do also have a philosophy club that meets every other week, um, which is one of my favorite days of the of the year, but or of the month, I should say. Um, but I think what you have to convey to your kids, it's really important in history class, is that you don't know the answer. I mean, that's what Socrates said, right? I mean, the wisest people know their ignorance, right? They were still looking for the answer. So I think if they know that I'm learning along with them, and I still think from a selfish standpoint with teaching is that's what I love. Mm -hmm. I mean, right. literally that I am learning on the job with them every day and every year. Absolutely. And I don't, maybe, they, maybe they see that. I don't know. I hope they do. Yeah, I hope they do. Yeah, when uh, when I first got hired as a teacher and going through the interview process, my first few years, people used to ask me, well, why do you teach? And I always used to say, well, I love kids. Mm -hmm. Now, 30 years into my career, of course, I still love kids. And, and, and I love being um, present for kids and hopefully being an encouragement to kids. But the, the thing I love most about teaching is what I love about talking to people like you in this podcast is I love to learn. 
Mm-hmm. And there is no better place to learn than in a school yeah. around developing people. You know, it's interesting. People will say, well, you know, highly competitive people, like what are you going to do when you retire from coaching? <laughs> well, my, my problem is what, what am I going to do when I retire from teaching? <laughs> I tell my wife, my wife that right. all the time. I'm like, yeah. where am I going to get right. the, the intellectual stimulation? I, I said, I'm going to have to maybe go teach part-time at a college or right. Uh, no matter how old I am, I mean, yeah. you know, the, to have that feeling is, tr- I love it. Jason, I, I totally agree with that. Um, I, I've often said, you know, I could give up the coaching and it, and it would be a little bit of a hole, but I could never give up the teaching. Mm-hmm. Um, and I don't know how you can replicate that. And and I've seen and talked to some people who have gotten out of the classroom and you can just tell they miss it. We've, we've got uh, a few people who have retired who, you know, they come back every other week um and and they kind of walk around and then i mean there's that human connection that it's almost impossible to replicate and if you're a sub you can't replicate it because you don't have that relationship with them you know sure Sure. and i think we're learning that here with remote learning um Mm -hmm. although i think that there's some things that can be done pretty well Mm -hmm. um the the idea though of being able to to read your students' body language, right, right, yeah, and um, to be able to see all the hands in the air, yep. right, <laughs> you know, that, that's just something like you said you just can't replicate, right. Mm-hmm. Jason, um, Scott talked about your room kind of being full of relics and signs and 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 stuff. Um, my classroom is probably a messier version of that, but I love signs and I love quotes from novels and all kinds of stuff. Mm-hmm. What what um and and to me, I guess they they have like really. Um, they, they, they have a deep amount of, of meaning and value to me. Um, I, I get attached to sometimes to objects or ideas or, or signs or, or memories. What, what in your classroom might the listener not know about that, that kind of speaks to you and you have a connection with a, that, that's a sign or a relic or whatnot? Well, my wife loves to go on vacation. Mm-hmm. Okay, so we have traveled a lot of places uh-huh. around the United States, and now we're, we're going beyond the United States, but mm-hmm. Um, I, I get a coffee mug from every historical place wow. that I that I've been to. Yeah, and um, you know it's just fun to you know to talk about it with the kids. And I have a map with you know all our places we've been. Yeah, and things like that. Um, but you know, you're, you know, people would say, "Oh, you got too much stuff in your room," but you just never <laughs> know what's going to catch the eye of a student. Right. You know, um, I had this old Russian uh, helmet from World War Two. Mm-hmm. And this kid just got obsessed with collecting yeah. Russian uh, military gear. Now, I'm not saying weapons. I mean, right, hopefully right. not. But, <laughs> uh, you know, the trench coats and the, right. the medals, and you go on eBay. And yeah. you know, before we know it, he's reading, you know, the Eastern Front, <laughs> you know, the Russians fighting the Germans in World War II, right? right. You just don't know what direction it's going to take a student. Yeah. Jason, you mentioned your wife. Uh, your wife, Carrie Knapp, is the principal at Medina Highland High School, one of the top mm-hmm. high schools in the state and really in the country. And you, you have four kids. Mm-hmm. So can you talk about how in the world does a teacher-coach balance family and teaching and coaching? Yeah, well, you know, it's the art of carving time, right? Yeah. You know, whether it's in the morning I got to get my lift in, my workout, you know, before school. Um, you know, obviously, that, then it's, you know, I'm teaching, and then I've always got a football commitment, mm-hmm. but then I've always got dinner, you know, dinner's a commitment, you know, and you, hopefully most of the time it's a family dinner, 
And, and that's why I bring up the vacations, you know, and, and my wife is, I think, very important in all of that. Yeah. You know, she's the glue and she makes sure that, um, you know, I don't get carried away, which I think we all know you can. I mean, you can carry away with teaching, too. Oh, yeah. I mean, there's always something to be done, right. always something to be graded, right. right? always a book to read. Yeah. Um, but, you know, it's the art of carving things out. That, and same with, the, you know, the football season. Right. There has to become a point where you're saying, I'm done for the night. Yeah. I'm yeah. done for tonight. And, uh, you know, it's, it's hard to do. Yeah, Jason, I've coached football before, mm-hmm. and I know that, um, I mean, I think I, I put in a lot of time as a basketball coach, but football, just maybe the condensed nature of the season, the way mm-hmm. the schedule works out, yeah. co- football coaches are so routine-oriented. They do the same thing on Monday, and they do the same thing every Tuesday and Wednesday throughout the week, mm-hmm. and you literally could be watching film at practice or prepping for a game 20 to 22 hours a day. Mm-hmm. How do you work smart as a football coach? Well, you know, you, you look at our, our staff now, and, and I, by the way, I coach for Coach Justin Todd now, who's just a tremendous football coach and one of the best coaches I've ever been around. And, you know, he's got this incredible energy, um, more energy maybe than anybody I've ever met. And you know, he'll put more hours in anybody, but the way he crafts our schedule is he always has in mind, you know, family time. Uh-huh. And, uh, you know, he's family-oriented. Family and, um, you know, we're constantly, this is interesting, our off-season meetings are how can we spend less time? Right. Right? Like, Coach, you just said, how do you work smarter? Yeah. It's, it's a constant battle. Right. And, um not like that. I think you, you're actually a better coach for it, too, because we all need a brain break yeah. and come back fresh. Right. Coach, do you are you a proponent of multi-sport athletes? I mean, with the football lifting going year-round now, I know many kids sometimes choose not to play uh, mm-hmm. a winter or spring sport because they really want to make sure they have a great season and, and they're committed to their team, which I give them a lot of respect for. However, you know, they might be missing out on another experience. What, what's, your, what's your feeling on that value? Well... You know, this is this is something I feel really, really strongly about, and um, I think you know we're all around the same age, and mm-hmm. I think we all remember when we we played everything. Yeah. And I wish it was that way. Yeah. You know, an award I think we should give in high school. Yeah. And, and we we should give the three sport award. Right. Like, if, you, if you played three sports throughout yeah. your high school career, yeah. I think it needs to be rewarded. Yeah. Um, there's got to be an incentive to get back to this. Right. Um, I think we all know how much better our players are when they play other sports. Yeah. However, I do know they are pulled in so many directions now. Yeah. Yeah, a are. lot of which is out of my control. Yeah. Whether it be their, um, you know, their their uh, summer teams or the teams, I guess, that yeah. aren't involved in the high school. Right. right. And I'm sure you guys maybe have had a podcast, or if not, will yeah. talk about that conundrum. Yeah. You know, what is the future right. with high school sports in regards to, and this is in no way saying anything bad about these organizations, right. AAU, yeah. right, the summer baseball, the, the off-season wrestling, um, yeah. How do we how do we handle that? Yeah. Uh, it's just so tough, and um, okay. you know I, I wish kids did it all. Yeah. I really do. 
I feel like there's a lot of perceived pressure from society that if they specialize, they're going to have a better chance of getting a college scholarship. And it's really a farce. Yeah, it's a it's a farce because very few are going to get a Division One scholarship, and if they do get a Division One scholarship, the parents probably have already spent fifty thousand to one hundred thousand dollars, maybe two hundred thousand dollars on this journey of getting there. Whereas, um, in, in in my ideal head or world, um, I feel like at those small schools, like maybe a Rootstown or a Garrettsville or a, maybe even a Manchester, there's still that 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 athlete who plays all three sports. And when I think about athletes who play all three sports, I think of Latroyd Lewis at Hoban. He was a, a football, basketball, and then in the spring he would go run track, which I was amazed at, that he would yeah. go run track. And sure. I always thought, I remember his junior or senior year, he was going to not play basketball because he was headed to Tennessee for football. And it was picture day, and he didn't show up. Um, and I literally uh, found him in the school we had a come to Jesus meeting that was a little bit heated and I kind of just dragged him by his earlobe down to the picture for basketball. And then he stuck with us after that. He then ran track one more time, lettered 12 times, I think in his Hoban experience and fast forward, he probably wasn't really a Tennessee recruit naturally, but he ended up fitting in there. And, uh, it's a great story because he ended up playing NFL football for about two years, and he's still playing XFL football. Uh, but wow. I, I always thought that his intangibles put him over the top because he was willing to give back to his school. And there aren't many kids who want to do that anymore. And I thought I thought that set him apart, that intangible quality. Yeah, I mean, I guess what what I mean, too, is, you know, what happened to the, the marginal player? I mean, that's okay. Like, let's say I'm not on the starting five. Right. Maybe I'm not even a starter. Yeah. You know, what happened to, you know, the football players? You know what? I'm going to go play basketball because I, I want to be on the team. I'll sit on the end of the bench and yeah. I'll be a part of the team and help in practice. And right. I just miss that. And yeah. um, I mean, I, I'm not saying they're not there, but right. I don't think it's what it used to be in that regard. Yeah, I think that's so true. And, and I think as teachers and coaches, it's so important for us to recognize that quote-unquote marginal player. Mm-hmm. You know, to me, playing freshman basketball and JV basketball for people of my age, that was like a rite of passage. It was yeah. understood we were going to do it. Um, some of the best memories and experiences of my life. And when I was a varsity mm-hmm. athlete, I wasn't, I, I wasn't a standout in my class, but yeah. I'll always remember my head coach telling me it was after a game we had won a big game on the road in the league we were at green high school in the locker room and it was my junior year it had put us in first place and i can remember my head coach dave slackey coming up to me and he knew i was upset um not that just because i hadn't played very much sure and he still took the time to tell me he said You know, he used to call me Scoob, and he said, (laughs) I'll never forget this. I was putting on my tie, which I didn't tie very well, and he said, Scoob, you keep your head up because you're going to be a great coach someday. Yep. Wow. And, and, I mean, that was, you know, that was 35 years ago. Right. And it's those kinds of kids, like you said, Jason, whether you, you know, and TK has talked about this in our podcast. You know, a lot of people discourage us from keeping that senior or even that junior who might not be in your starting like 
six, seven, eight mm-hmm. in, in football, maybe not one of your top, you know, 22 to 35 guys. Right. But it's those guys maybe towards the end of the bench or the middle of the bench that maybe were giving them something yeah. that they'll never forget and it'll change their life forever. Sure. Absolutely. Yeah, it, it saddens me sometimes. I know um, this coronavirus has um, made a few people reach out to me, actually, and uh, student-athletes, uh, one in particular, and, and just mentioned that he, he really wishes he would have played uh, basketball last year because, you know, you just don't know. You, you, I guess we can't take things for granted. And if you can be a part of something and you're good enough to contribute in some way, shape, or form, even if it be in practice, heck, why not do it? But, J- um, Jason, I want to get back to where we are now before we wrap up. Um yeah. How do, how do you enjoy being the defensive coordinator at, at Wadsworth, and how did your Kenmore experience make you a better coach uh, as, as the D coordinator? Did you like calling your own game? Yeah, I mean, there, there are some adjustments, uh, you know, coming into the Suburban League, especially when the Suburban League changed, and mm-hmm. um, there's a kind of a, a bigger side and a smaller side, and yeah. obviously the competition. Yeah. So there's a kind of a learning curve, but, you know, Coach Todd is uh, really hands-off when it comes to the defense, mm-hmm. and... Um, which has allowed us to be very, very creative as yeah. a defensive staff. Now, he, he does come in the room, and boy, when he does, it's a good thing because, you know, he's also been a defensive coordinator, and, yeah. um, you know, he obviously just adds to the conversation and gives yeah. us more and more tips. But um, I think that's one of the great um, characteristics of a, of a good head coach is somebody who trusts and gives responsibility to his staff. Yeah, and he, he's allowed me to do that, and I'm so thankful. He lets me be myself. Yeah, and um, you know, we've just worked very, very well together. Right, very, very uh, uh, happy to yeah. to be working for him. Jason, what's something that you do as a coach now, twenty years into coaching, um, very different from when you were a first through fifth year coach? Mm-hmm. Well. You know, I, I'm able to watch the game evolve. You know, like what early 2000s, there's still two running backs in the backfield, right? right? And you know, you had some good quarterbacks, but not like you do now. Yeah. Right now, now it's a fast pace game. Now tempo. Now it's five receivers. You know, how are you going to handle all of these athletes on the field? The game's in space. Yeah. Right. The, the game is sped up. Right. Yeah. So you know. Defensing uh, of that kind of offense now is very challenging. Yeah. Um, but that's kind of what I love about it. Mm-hmm. And this idea that, oh, they're going to score a lot of points. I just don't really buy into that still. Right. You know, we, we don't have to let them score a lot of points. That'd yeah. be a trap meet, right. so to speak. Um, and it doesn't take, take away anything from coaching 20 years ago that you have right. to be a better coach now. That's not what I mean. You'd be a different coach. Right. Okay, and don't get me wrong, those teams that still come at you with two running backs and want to run the ball, that scares me just as much <laughs> as an empty backfield. I know right. Oban is similar to that. I mean, yeah. they're going to run the ball right at you. I mean, that's yeah. very worrisome, but right. um, there's a lot of a lot involved now. Yeah. A little sophisticated now. Yeah. I, I think with your calls and what your kids can do. And, mm-hmm. you know, at Wadsworth, you know, we have really, really smart kids. You yeah. get a lot done right. on, on the field. Jason, I think so much of football right now from a rules standpoint and an emphasis standpoint is to highlight the offensive side of the football and scoring. Mm-hmm. Uh, so with that in mind, and Nick Saban talks about this a lot, how do you coach 
through failure. Mm-hmm. Well, uh, as a defensive coordinator. Yeah, yeah. I just had we've been having so many remote install meetings with our kids because it's all you can do now, right? Talk to your football players and that kind of stuff. Um, you, you know, it's like I told them the other day at the defense. I'm like, you know, when we when we blitz, okay, this blitz package here, it's not going to be perfect, right? And we may get home on this one, and we we may not on the next one, right? But we got to be able to play through that, okay? They might rip one off for for 30 yards. But again, we have to be able to uh, weather the storm. I think that's one of the more difficult things to teach now is that, um, you know, they're going to gain some yards. Right. Uh, They don't have to score a touchdown, though. Yeah. Yeah. Jason, what, what's your option? We've had some coaches on the podcast tell us that the best coaches are kind of Jekyll and Hyde. You, you, you've talked about consistency in the classroom. Is Coach Knapp a different guy on the football field than he is in the classroom? I would hope not. Um, you know what I, I, I make sure that I do? And I'm not saying that this is the way to do it, but I never bring up coaching in the classroom. Mm-hmm. And I would like the kids to walk out of there not knowing that I coach football. Right. Well, I'm sure they do. Yeah. But it's never the topic. Yeah. Okay. However, I I do think there are times when they work together. Here's what I mean. If your football players know Mm -hmm. you teach like you coach, they're going to respect you more as a coach. Yeah. I I just really believe that. Yeah. Um, that your, your authority is going to be that much better. Like if you're in the classroom and you're not serious and you're, you're joking around and then you're going to come to football practice and then try to be serious. Right. right. I, I don't know how that would work. Right. Like right. You, you, you don't care about history, but you care a lot about football. Yeah. I mean, that's inconsistent. Right. Right. You, you, you don't dress nicely. Yeah. Right. You know, or, um, let's say you dress nice for class, but then yeah. you, you look like crap at practice. I mean, yeah. you know, um, it all goes together, I think, yeah. right? So you're a man of consistency even on the field. How, how will you address an athlete who's not doing what you want them to do? Well, you know, I think that's changed too o- over the years, and I think that, that happens as you get older. Right. You know, I, I do think sometimes back to some of the ways I handled some players in the past or even yeah. kids in my class Yeah. where I may have lost my temper Yeah. and I, I wish that I wouldn't have. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. But here's what I do know too, is that we're not perfect. Yeah. You know, we're not perfect teachers. We're not perfect coaches. And right. by all means, education is never going to be perfect. Right. And either is sports. Yeah. And I think it's time that we understand that. Yeah. Like, don't expect hmm. the football season to be perfect. Right. Right. What did Lou Holtz say? You're going to have three crises a year. Yeah. Right. Yep. And um, I just think everybody wants perfection from everybody <laughs> and everything all of the time. Right. And it's not going to be that way. Just like your players aren't going to be perfect. Right. Like, what did Coach G tell me once, Coach Grimuglia? You know, don't don't put all your stock in a 15 year old kid. I mean, right. he's gonna make a mistake. Yeah. Right? Absolutely. Snap, you, you did mention Justin Todd coming into Wadsworth and being a very energetic figure there. Oh, and yeah. I, I'm just curious, um, not knowing him very well. Uh, what are some ingredients that a teacher coach can pick up from from uh, Coach Todd? Well, I, I think if you want to sit down with a coach and talk about how to build a program, okay, and how to build a culture and how to get your numbers up and how to cr- create a lot of energy, 
I mean, he's the guy to talk to. Um, you know, I, I kind of look at him as an entrepreneur. Yeah. Like he knows how to raise a lot of money for the mm-hmm. program. And as you know today, football is very expensive. Oh, yeah. And you just don't have enough in your budget, so you need extra. Yeah. But I think through that, he's also teaching the kids that, you know, you got to work hard. Yeah. You want things. Like we, right. we have a mulch sale. Yeah. Well, if you want nice uniforms, you're, you're going to have to sweat. Yeah. Right. You know, that idea that, you know, football gets everything. Yeah. I, I just don't really understood that. I don't yeah. mean to get on a pedestal here. Sure. But I, I just always felt that football is a lot what you earn. Yeah. You know, a lot of sports. I don't think sports get anything. I think it's, yeah. you get what you earn. Right. Um, so he's, I think, really taught that almost blue collar work ethic mm-hmm. in our program. Yeah. And um, I've just learned so much from him from top to bottom. Yeah. Oh, yeah. He, he's fantastic. Jason, to wrap up my end of it, um, when I think of you, I think of energy and emotion and toughness and work ethic, but I also think of you as a lifelong learner. Mm -hmm. Um, Why don't you share with us, from a teacher and a coach's perspective, um, you said you're 45 years old. What are three or four ways that you learn today, um, 20 years into your profession? Well, it was it was uh, sad. We had a, a trip planned with the kids at Wadsworth. I'm part of what we call Grizzlies Abroad. Mm-hmm. And in 2016, we went to France and Spain. Uh, this year, um, we were going to go to Eastern Europe, which I was so excited. We were going to go to Prague, yeah. um, the Czech Republic. And then we were going to go down to um, Vienna and Austria. And then we were going to end up in the Balkans there, Slovenia, and then end up I guess finish in in uh, Venice, Italy. Wow! And it all got canceled. Yeah, you know, and um, you know, for me, that's that's kind of the new things I'm into. I'm into traveling abroad and being in places where I teach. Yeah. Um, yeah. Like when I was in Paris, you know, I, I mean, I teach about Paris all the time. Yeah. Right. Napoleon and French Revolution, and not, now I can share these pictures with the kids. But when you share the pictures with the kids, it's different. Yeah. Right. I mean, I can go get a picture off the internet, but it, it's so weird when you show them the picture you took with your camera, Yeah, you know, this this idea that you were, it's more organic, I guess, so to right. speak. But, um, traveling is one, reading, I mean, obviously in the quarantine, you know, now I can I can do a lot of that. Yeah. Um, I, I, I developed the philosophy club because I think kids still need a, a place to uh, just talk and think. Right. And that, that might be where we're missing the boat. Yeah. You know, I don't know what that course looks like in high school, whether it should be a, a humanities. Uh, you know, TK, you might know this a bit more at, uh, at Hoban. You know, these types of courses, mm-hmm. whether it be uh, some ethics or religion or these kinds of topics that make kids think about how to be a human. Yeah, right? absolutely. And, and that, that's what yeah. we're, we're doing. You know, people yeah. want to talk about you know, racism and, and those things. And, you know, like I tell our kids in, in my class, like, I'm worried about the human race. Right. That's, that's my number one. Right. The human race. And right now, the pandemic, I think, is really proving that. Yeah. That we're all in this one together. And there's yeah. no uh, national border that can help. Right. Absolutely. And uh, no ethnicity that can help, no religion. Yeah. As far as, you know, uh, getting out of this, um, we're, we're all going to be in on this together. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. J- Jason, is there one book or um, movie 
if kids aren't into reading, which I hope they are in the reading because I'm an English teacher, mm-hmm. is there one movie or a book that you would recommend um, a younger, anybody uh, from our age all the way down to a teenager uh, might get their hands on over this pandemic and read or a movie? You know, it's going to sound, again, maybe cliche. I hope it doesn't. Mm-hmm. Um, but I, I just think that the Rocky movies yeah. uh, from start to finish, Yeah, I think a lot with me it touches me about sylvester stallone is if you read about him you know he had no money to to make that first movie like had to sell his dog to have enough money to make that movie and he wrote it and just the whole thing and overcoming adversity and and all of those things but i think any movies that would would talk about adversity yeah for sure as we wrap up with coach jason that jason i have to ask you do you um you were a head coach at kenmore You've mm-hmm. had an incredible teaching and coaching career already. Is that something that you uh, want to tackle one more time in your career, or is there not necessarily a um, a dream to do that as far as being a head football coach? That's a really good question. Um, you know, I'm just so comfortable with what I'm doing right now. I just feel like there's something I've got to um, finish yeah. as a defensive coordinator. Right. You know, we've been close. You know, we really want to get over that hump. Um, you know, a regional title and yeah. make it into the final four and maybe a little bit beyond. Um, so I, I just really have been focused on that goal. Yeah. Um, you know, if it came down my my road again, I would definitely consider it. Yeah. But I guess what I would tell you is I don't need it. Yeah. I, I don't need to be the head coach. Right. Uh, I could be the defensive coordinator and, and teach yeah. history yeah. For, for the next 15 years and be just fine. Jason, would you recommend that your own children become teachers, coaches? I would hope, you know, and I would be so proud if they did. If they don't, that's fine, too. Um, But I I just think it's such a rewarding and pleasurable life. Mm -hmm. And and that's what I would tell people, I guess, at the end of this this podcast is just the pleasure that it brings in so many different ways. You know, if you have to be on purpose all the time, every single day, and that that is tiring. There's yeah. no doubt about that. Yeah. If you're going to bring it every day, uh, there's not enough coffee, right? <laughs> <laughs> you know, you, you got to dig deep. I yeah, mean, you Coach, do. You know this, right? Oh, yeah. Um, there's nothing I like better than teaching eighth period on a Friday before a football game. Yeah. And it just kind of gets me ready. Like, i got to dig deep. Doesn't it drive you crazy? Here's what drives me crazy as a teacher. One of the many things. When people <laughs> complain about Mondays, yeah. I, I, I try to emphasize in my class every day yeah. that Mondays are my favorite day of the week. Yep. Sure. And even sure. if I don't believe it, even yeah. if something's not going right, I try to make Mondays the best time of the week for my students. Yeah. And then you talk about Fridays. We always talk about finishing what you start on Fridays. Yep. And, yep. you know, you get two days off on Saturday and Sunday from, yeah. from regular schooling. So sure. Friday ought to be our best day. There ought Oops. to be the most Absolutely. energy and spirit yep. in our school collectively on Fridays. Yeah, thank God it's Monday, right? Time to grind. Exactly. Yep. Well, Jason, um, thank you so much for spending your time with us here. Um I want to wrap up with this image of Rocky Balboa because um, yeah. what I have a sense of is that you you truly have the eye of the tiger that it takes to be a phenomenal teacher and coach. Um, somebody who 
made that decision as a youngster. So I think spiritually it was in you through serendipity or through some sort of sign that came to you when you were at OU that you had more left to give to the game and you wanted to kind of um, utilize those experiences in, in your own uh, life after college when you went to Mountain Union. Um, but one of the things about Rocky that I think is pretty cool, it's, it's when he runs those steps, um, kind of like you've run those steps. I mean, your, your, mm-hmm. your journey at Maslin and at Kenmore, I mean, those are pretty big steps to take. And then the steps to come back to, to Wadsworth. But he, he actually runs 72 stone steps that lead up to the entrance of the Philadelphia Museum of Art. And that kind of reminds me of your, of your coffee mugs that are in your classroom. Where when, uh, up, uh, upon your travels, you bring back those relics for your students to see um, and, and to talk about and, and to connect with. And whether it's a Russian helmet or a, maybe it's a Rocky Balboa poster, whatever mm-hmm. it may be, I think Coach Jason Knapp certainly has the eye of the tiger. And I can't wait to go to a Wadsworth football game next year because I'm going to look at it from a whole different vantage point, ladies and gentlemen. I'm also going to read a few books that he mentioned, watch a few movies, and appreciate history even more. Thank you very much to Coach Jason Knapp out of Wadsworth High School.